Hi everyone, welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Chitendo. This episode is with Enrico Cohen. He is a plant biologist and geneticist at John Innes Center. Enrico's work has focused on unraveling the intricate genetic and molecular mechanisms that govern the formation and growth of plants. He is also the author of two books, namely Cells to Civilizations and Art of Genes. In this conversation, we talk about major transitions in biology, emergence of complexity, evolution of life, drivers of evolution, evolution of brains, intelligence, and science. Enjoy the conversation, share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Enrico. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, hi, Jitenda. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there are different aspects of the conversation that we are going to have. One aspect is the 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 kind of work that you do uh, as a scientist, as a biologist. But then there are also aspects to to our existence, the why two sapiens, they are sitting here in front of their screens and having this conversation, right? So the whole process of evolution itself. Mm-hmm. So so let's start with uh, the 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 kind of story uh, which is out there we we call it darwinian evolution <laughs> the, the process of uh, darwinian evolution so what's what's your understanding about it um and how do we go from let's say a single cell bacteria which was living about 4 billion years ago to this two homo sapiens having a conversation well, that's, yeah, that's quite a journey, isn't it? That's quite a journey, and it's a remarkable journey, one that we take for granted, but you're not doing so in, in raising that question. Um, so the way I, I tend to think of it in terms of four key transformations, four amazing transformations. One, one is the transformation of evolution through natural selection. That's the one that Darwin first gave a, a plausible mechanism for, which is sort of how you evolved from these primates, from early bacteria, uh, unicellular organisms through to, you know, multicellular complex, more complex uh, beings. Then uh, there's another transformation, which is the transformation of development. Okay, so you start with a fertilized egg and that somehow transforms itself into an embryo and then into an organism, a plant or a human or a or any other any other type of creature. So that's the that's another remarkable transformation. All these transformations seem to happen sort of in a in a kind of autonomous way. There's, there's nobody guiding the process from the outside. They all happen on their own. So in one case, you start with a primitive being that if through evolution you end up with the diversity of forms that we see around it. In development, you start with this very simple simple looking egg. But over a time of a generation, you end up with uh, a complex uh, being. But then there's another transformation which happens in certain types of animals, which is the transformation of learning, whereby, so a newborn infant um, doesn't know how to add and subtract and to have a conversation. But through um, through learning, the, 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 the newborn starts to, to acquire all sorts of knowledge and that's not just true of humans, of course. A, a newborn puppy will learn will learn all sorts of things as well. So um, that's another amazing transformation, going from the newborn sort of naive uh, animal to the more sophisticated animal that can interact in all sorts of elaborate ways in its environment. 
And then, uh, so that's the transformation of learning, um, which depended on the previous transformations. In a sense, you had to have evolution in order to have a multicellular organism that could develop. And then you had to have organisms that could develop in order to have learning, because you need brains for learning. So you need to you needed to develop brain. But then there's a fourth transformation, which humans particularly have um, undergone, which is what you call cultural change. Um, so if you went back 10,000 years ago, the brain of the human of a human living in a stone in the Stone Age is no different from biologically, it is not fundamentally different from the brain of a newborn human today. But the culture that the, the cultural experience is very, very different. And so culture has evolved or changed. We use the word evolution again. But in fact, we cultural change has happened, particularly over the last 10,000 years. Through, through agriculture and so forth, to the point that we not only are having a conversation, but we're doing it via Zoom. Um, and I'm sitting in, 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 um, on the coast of England, uh, and you're sitting uh, in Brno, and it's incredible. I mean, here we are, and it feels like you're in my room. And all of that is because of cultural transformation. It depends on the other transformation. But most recently, it depends on cultural transformation, that all the technologies that have arisen through cultural change. And so really, um, there, there, there are these four nested transformations um, that underlie us having this conversation now, each one of them amazing and remarkable. Um, uh, I have a view that actually there are some common elements to all of those transformations. They have some common principles. Um, but the fact is, they are incredible transformations that are kind of uh, mind-boggling in terms of how they've achieved all these all these changes. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and also, I mean, I especially like the the idea of uh, you know kind of zooming out, uh, zooming in um, at the process because in general, when we talk about this, these kind of transitions, we only talk about evolution. Of course, the other three transitions are equally important, right? Yeah, we tend to separate the, the, them out and, and we do tend to study, scientifically, we study them separately. So there are evolutionary biologists, developmental biologists, neurobiologists, and then there are, I suppose you call them historians, those that study cultural change. Um, people see the connections between them. There clearly are connections between them. Um, so you have evolutionary developmental biologists. So you make hybrids. Okay, You have developmental neurobiologists. Okay? Um, but nevertheless, um, it's difficult to connect the different the different things. And, and my view is that that's because often we're trying to connect them too literally. All right. So if, for example, um, if you take something like cultural change, in fact, one of Darwin's great achievements was to show that evolution, we often say evolution was not by design. Okay. So, so there was the analogy, an analogy made between process of evolution or the, the organism's adaptation to their environment and human design, okay? So that we design something to work in a certain environment in a certain way, um, like we design this computer to fulfill a certain function. And evolution also looks like it's designed in the sense that there's adaptations, things. That, um, but Darwin's great achievement was to show that actually, in a sense, you don't need a human designing mind or a god, God's designing mind, to design, to create adaptations in the biological world, which is, I completely agree with. Having said that, 
Human design itself is an outcome of a transformation, of a biological transformation. So it's not that human design is sitting on its own out there in, its, in, in some miraculous thing that humans came up with. Actually, our ability to design is something that arose all right, also through these other transformations, particularly cultural transformations, which have improved through, through culture. We've improved our ability to design. So design is health is, a, is an outcome, but we tend to think of it as separate because it's human. Okay, so we tend to think of the things that we do as a kind of um, uh, anthropocentric sort of arrogance that humans have, that we, what we do is somehow disconnected with what biology does. And in one sense, that's useful because it's saying that evolution didn't happen through a, a mind guiding it. Okay, on, because we make that analogy, we break that analogy. On the other hand, we tend to separate our designing ability from the evolutionary process itself. But actually, we are animals, all right, that do that, that, that design as a result of the evolutionary process. Uh, and historical process that led to our being. So in that sense, these boundaries that we make, um, we have to be very careful about because sometimes they have the effect of removing humans from the, the drama that has happened. So we extract ourselves as, as observers with very special qualities, like we can design and so forth. And then there's the biological world that we study that is kind of separate, um, that we are not really we're slightly outside of the stage. We are observers observing the drama of evolution. Actually, we're right in the middle of that stage and we're observing evolution in a very peculiar way that reflects our biological origin. So in that sense, I think, you know, there are links that tend to be missed because of the way we like to think of ourselves. We like to think we're observing the world on a stage rather than realizing we're part of the stage. And I think the, the the major problems are with biologists, right? Because physicists, I think they are very, very comfortable with this notion because whatever laws that they are studying in a closed box, they are they can easily apply to like anywhere in the universe, basically, mm -hmm. given of course the the, the, the conditions. Um well, you make you make a very interesting point. What about physicists? So there are the physicists. Also, some physicists, I don't think you can generalize, but certain physicists might say, right, we're discovering the fundamental laws that apply uh, to, to irrespective. But then the fact is that they're, so you would say that physics is fundamental, all right? And biology is some very elaborate, specialized thing that happened that created, that led to the evolution of humans. So physics then is, in a sense, the the big story, and biology is a story that occurred within, within physics, and that's perfectly fine. However, physics is invented by humans, physicists, all right? When I say invented, I mean our way of thinking about physics. All those laws are the ways that we, as humans, describe the world, okay? We can't extract ourselves from that. We represent things in equations or whatever in ways that make, make sense to us. We believe somehow they're features of something that are independent of us, but nevertheless, we view it through human eyes. There's no escaping that. And there's this, so, so in a sense, you could say that the biology comes first because we can't do physics unless we, we have a brain 
that can look at the world in certain ways. And so I think what's very difficult to, un to, to understand and get your head around is knowing the extent to which these things that we are describing, the laws of physics, are creations to some extent of our own, or they're certainly um, the way that we describe them are, are colored by our biology as well. I don't see how it cannot be the case. We find certain things easier to think about than other things, all right? So we'll find you know, um, certain ideas more abstract, other ideas more easy, easier. For example, let's take a very simple example. Addition is easier than multiplication. All right, now that's not a law of physics. It's a law of us, okay? Why do we find subtraction harder than addition, okay? Is it because subtraction is inherently more complicated than addition? All right, why is an imaginary number or more difficult than a real number? So this has to do with the way our brain operates. And so physics, in a sense, is also in a context of biology. It's, it's a biological view of the world, a very, very powerful view of the world, but it's, it is situated in biology. But many people would not see it that way. They would again say, well, physics tells us about the stage we're observing the stage, and physics tells us the rules of the stage independently of anyone looking at the stage. So again, we extract ourselves from it. So, so, um, so that perception of, of, of us being part of that uh, representation is challenging. Even in the case of physics, it gets tends to get ignored. I would say, among some people, I'm sure some some fantastic physicists. Um, are aware of this as well. You can see, see it like that. Uh, others maybe see it differently. I'm not saying who is correct and who is incorrect. I'm just <laughs> saying even in the case of physics, there's an issue. Yeah, but then let's uh, zoom out and um, explain what is science or how do you explain scientific method? Ah. Um, yeah, so science, uh, well, there's the, oh, there's the issue of the origins of science and also the question of how science operates. So science, I would say, is about um, trying to find economical explanations or models for how the world works that we can share and we can test. Okay? So um, this is a very powerful way of say, right, we, we, we see some planetary behaviors and we say, oh, we come up with an idea, a model that explains it in a very simple way. And then we can say this model makes predictions that we can also um, test by through observation. And we can also challenge those ideas by coming up with better ideas, better hypotheses um, that we can critically evaluate and share. So it involves um, coming up with hypotheses about the way the world works, putting predictions about the based on those hypotheses, and then testing those hypotheses and, and challenging them. So that's the scientific method, and it's based on. Consistent. It's, it's a component of it is, is mathematical and logical in the sense that our stories, our, our scientific explanations would be need, have to be self-consistent. Um, they shouldn't be logically inc inconsistent. So you can't have a scientific explanation that contradicts itself. And it shouldn't contradict the experimental evidence either. So um, the, the sort of hallmarks of science are those criteria that something should so should not should be consistent with experimental results, and also consistent internally consistent in terms of logic. So in that in that sense, it relates also to have, they have a mathematical structure. 
So that's what I would say is the scientific method. It's a way that humans have figured out of making very powerful economical explanations of how the world works. Exactly. And uh, this is where I was going then. So let's say if uh, in future we meet aliens mm -hmm. and then, I mean, of course, if we meet them, then they sh they must be technically superior in a way, right? Um, that's why they managed to reach here. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, the question being, can we or would be able to um, share these stories with them and exchange those stories, for example, through science or not? That's the, because if it is only our way of looking at the nature of reality, mm. it means the, our stories may be incompatible uh, with their stories. But then if we are actually looking at the nature of reality, uh, then somehow, uh, somewhere, I mean, as uh, like, even before recording this, when we were talking about the languages, right? So it's like, you know, different colors in different languages, which, uh, which may be defined. Uh, so in, in some language, it may be defined with X, Y, Z, or, or in our language, we may define those three colors with A, B, C. Mm -hmm. But once we point it out, we can kind of understand that we are A is equal to X and et cetera, et cetera, right? So in the same way, uh, we may be telling stories in a different language, but if we are really studying the nature of reality, we should be able to somehow exchange those stories. What do you think? I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to understand like how uh, kind of fundamental mm -hmm. is or uh, is science or scientific method in that sense? Well, um, so the question, so you've asked the question, if we met an alien, would we be able to have some commonalities? I think that we would, but we might find it very difficult to establish those commonalities. For example, I just gave the example of we find addition um, easier than multiplication. Now, maybe our aliens don't. Maybe they find multiplication much easier than addition. And therefore, they will have maybe represented things in a different way that makes it that's easy for them. All right. So when you when I when I explain something to you, and the same would be true in physics or, or mathematics, you say, Oh, you 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 have certain steps and you need to follow those steps. And certain steps are easier to follow than other steps. So I make the steps as simple to follow and logical that you can say, oh yes, that clearly follows, and then and so forth. Now that, that sequence may be different for our alien, but nevertheless may have gone through some steps and arrived at the same kind of uh, predictions in their own language, all right? How easy it would be for us to understand their language and for them to understand our language, I, you know, is, is an open question. But I don't think, um, I mean, we, we, we were talking about, bee, talking about bees, for example, all right? So how much you can understand that what a bee is doing. So a bee talks to has a uh, waggle dance in which it communicates the whereabouts of food to another bee. As observers, we can see that, see what the bee is doing, and we can see, oh yes, the bee's language, this waggle means that the food is located such and such a distance and so forth. So in a sense, we're understanding the bee, but we're understanding the bee in our own terms, okay? And the bee manages to find the food in its own terms. The bee is not, um, abstracting and saying, oh, the reason I'm doing the waggle dance is because of this, and now I can calculate how many, the direction and so forth. It's not doing any of this. That's the way we describe how the bee is finding the food. 
the we just the bee just kind of does its thing and flies off instinctively and goes in the in the right direction. So the bee's understanding is very different from our understanding, and yet the result is the same. In both cases, we can tell from the bee's dance where the food is going to be. The bee can tell where the food's going to be. So from a practical point of view, we look at the bee's dance. The bee, both of us and the bee, arrive at the same conclusion, that the food is located such and such. But we do it in a very different way. And if we try and talk to the bee, and the bee tries to talk to us, well, certainly if we try and talk to the bee, the bee won't listen to us. Okay? <laughs> we'll find it very hard to understand. And the we understand the bee in our own terms. So I would say you're alien when, when they come. I have no idea. Depending on how their brain is structured, assuming they have a brain, or maybe what form it is, it's, it's, it's a biological alien similar to us with a, with a brain and neurons. That's already going to bring us a certain uh, distance close to each other. Then we would have to figure out whether what they find easy is difficult and so, and so forth. And, um, I think it would be an incredibly difficult but fascinating <laughs> process of translation to try and figure out how they how they see the world. All right. I mean, it's difficult enough for two humans to communicate. Um, when you're trying to learn something that you're not familiar with, okay, and somebody tells you, um, I mean, um, yeah, you have this all the time with technology. I mean, that's the classic thing, all right. You get some some piece of it, some you buy something, and they say, Oh, yeah, you just do it like this. And you, you try pressing the buttons, and it doesn't do what you think it should do. And oh, and then you realize you should have done this. And the, oh, didn't you know? So you have all these um, difficulties communicating, even with a member of your own species, in terms of trying to understand what they're getting at. So when you're dealing with an alien, I think there'll be even some significant issues, even in the, in the world of physics. Yeah. So, I mean, what I was thinking is, uh, let's say that if science is fundamental, that science is able to understand the nature of reality, so then the second, so for example, if we have a human here or in the future, probably on Mars or somewhere else, uh, for that person, uh, second law of th thermodynamics would be the same, right? no matter which language uh, that person speaks, et cetera. Uh, in the same way, what I was thinking that if we meet aliens, for example, in the future, and would they have equivalent of second law of thermod thermodynamics, for example? It may be in any different language, et cetera. We, we don't really care about that because we we'll, I think the translation should be, shouldn't be that difficult. If we could I mean, nowadays already we can translate a lot of languages with AI, et cetera. Um, but the fact like how, because somehow with the science, we are able to go beyond our intuition in a way, right? I mean, simply looking at the microorganisms or looking at uh, other kind of behaviors that we observe nowadays. So this is where, uh, like I was trying to understand like how, fundamental is scientific method in, in that way. So what I think is very interesting about your line of questioning is you're saying that if it's fundamental, if something's fundamental, what do we mean by something's fundamental? Yeah. Okay. What you're saying is almost if I can, ex if it's not dependent on humans, that makes it fundamental. Yeah. In other words, if an alien could come up with the same thing, then yeah. it's fundamental. 
So in other words, you're again trying to extract humans from the stage, all right? So here's, if it's fundamental, it means that if the humans aren't involved, okay, then it's still there. And, and the same thing is on the stage, irrespective of whether we as humans are watching it. Now, I don't, in a sense, I understand that that's what, but this, that's what you're trying to do. But you have to ask yourself, why is that your criterion of fundamental? See, I don't think of it that way. I say, right, we're actually part of this. I can't extract myself from the stage. Okay. I know that the, I can see the stage, but the idea that I have to extract myself and I worry about what would the stage look like if I wasn't here and some an alien came and looked at it, it's something we could speculate about, but it's not something that bothers me. Okay, it's not the question that I, I that that um, challenges me. To me, science is fundamental in the sense it's incredibly powerful way of explaining things are the way things are. It makes a lot of sense. It 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 makes predictions that you can test that, that come that are continually verified. Uh, it's incredibly si simple in some ways. That's the beauty of it. So all of these things tell me science is fundamental without me worrying about aliens, right? I don't need to worry about that. I just think that the way we look at the world, there is, okay, put it another way. As humans, we can look at the world in lots of different ways. And one of the ways of looking at it, which is science, I think is incredibly powerful. And it's powerful its power tells me in some sense it's telling us something very fundamental because if it wasn't so if it wasn't fundamental why would it be that you know you can make these incredible predictions with incredible precision all right and they come out to be correct and these are about from the movements of a planet to the to the to the behavior of a of a of a, of a rabbit all sorts or the growth of a plant we have incredible explanatory power and ability to predict. And that tells me that we're dealing with something pretty basic uh, that has such incredible explanatory power and beauty. I don't need to worry about, well, would it, would it still be look the same if I wasn't here and somebody else was looking at it? I don't know, to be honest, because I, I, I can't do that experiment. I can't look at the world other than through human eyes. The question is, how, how important is it to answer that question, you know what I'm saying? So I can live with it being fundamental without worrying about that, maybe just because I'm blinkered, maybe I should be caring about it, but we all have different cares, all right? For me, it's not an issue um, because I'm, I think, I don't wish to extract myself in a sense. I suppose I accept I'm part of the picture and it doesn't bother me, okay? I think that's the point. The point is that some people, because science is objective, what, what do we mean by science being objective? It means that you can do the same experiment that I can do, and we can both observe it, do the test. So and then it doesn't depend on just on what I say. You can verify and test things independently, independently of me. So in that sense, we say it's objective because it's not just what I think. It's also what you would what you could, could verify for yourself. But that doesn't mean it's not human, okay? Because the other person that's doing the test is you is another human, all right? No other. We're only asking humans to test each other's observations. We're not asking rabbits to test our experiment. We don't publish for journals for, to be read by rabbits, okay? So we're only testing against each other. So we don't know what an alien would do. Whether an alien would find what we're talking about is complete gobbledygook. 
So in that sense, we're not objective in the sense that science is human. But it's, it is objective in the sense that anyone is able to test things, all right, and, and validate them. So what we'd like to do, though, is because we're doing it objectively in the sense that other humans can test what we're doing, we then say, we then take the next step to, well, maybe it's absolutely objective. Okay, we want this reassurance now that actually it's so objective that it not just depends on what you uh, think, that, but, but an alien or anybody, or it's something completely separate from us, and we want to separate it from us. Now, why we want to do that is a very interesting question. Why do we want to extract ourselves? It's, an emotion, an, it's almost an emotional need to somehow have this thing that is independent of us. It kind of, in a funny way, we find that reassuring. We find it reassuring to think that some solid ground that doesn't depend on us being part of the picture. That's a very appealing idea. Some people find that very reassuring. Um, I personally don't find it, doesn't bother me to say, actually, I'm part of the picture. It doesn't bother me to feel that I'm part of the performance that I'm observing. Um, and I don't feel this need to extract myself from the picture. So I think that that's, um, that's the issue, why this need, that's the question I would put to you, why do we have this need to invoke this absolutist view? Why not just accept it's incredibly powerful, it's beautiful, and we all enjoy it, and that's enough, and we can all test it for each other and agree as humans uh, whether something is wrong, likely to be wrong or likely to be incorrect without us necessarily thinking, you know, can we now extract humans from the from the picture in some in some meaningful way? Yeah, actually the so first of all, I mean of course the that's the beauty of it that we can be be a part of it and still we can have this kind of a tool which can go uh, beyond our intuition and we can kind of uh, explain what whatever we are able to explain. Um, but then why do we need it? That's, I think this is where um, it's, a, what I think it's, it's about, again, your metaphor, the the storytelling part, right? So if science or scientific method or the way we conduct science, if this is a part of story, there are other stories also in the society, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where when you, like as scientists, when we are discussing and we are ex explaining the importance of this tool, I mean, why do I call, for example, this podcast Reason with Science? Mm -hmm. I mean, somewhere we can use that scientific understanding to reason and make cer certain decisions in the society, be it uh, at the social level, political level, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where I think it becomes important um, how important the method is or how uh, basic the method is, as, as you said. So, yeah, that's that's just one way to look at it. Yeah, I think I think it's a very, very powerful method. Does not mean it's absolutely objective. Okay. Then we would like to if so I would say science is an incredibly powerful method for explaining and describing certain aspects of the world. Okay. So, and it's important to say that it's certain aspects. It's not very good for certain for other aspects. And we should not 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 make the mistake of thinking because we might be a very good scientist at explaining certain things, does not mean we might. We can, there's all sorts of things, all right, that we would not be able to explain with the scientific method, which we can come to. But the but because it's a very powerful scientific method does not mean we need to then say it's independent of the scientists that do it. 
It's certainly the case that it's independent of an individual scientist in the sense that other scientists can test and challenge ideas and so forth in an objective way. So, for example, science is based on... Suppose I say to you that um, uh, I make a statement that you cannot test or that depends totally on you trusting me. Okay? So if I say to you there's, a, there's an elephant behind this wall, all right, and you say, yeah, but what's the evidence? So no, you just don't, I, you don't have to trust me that that's the case. Okay. Then that's not a scientific claim, okay? Because it's not subject to independent verification by others. All right, so in that sense, science has some very specific requirements, all right? Now, if I was telling you a story, if, I, if you were my child, all right, and I would be saying, you know, there's an elephant behind the wall and the elephant lives um, there and um, every day it comes out and, and sometimes it makes a loud noise and that, that's the thunder that you're hearing uh, when the rain is when the rain is falling. So I, I build a story that's perfectly acceptable and a child may, we might enjoy that story. In fact, fictional stories, we can create all sorts of things in fiction and it's a perfectly valid way of communicating, but it's not. It's not a scientific, we wouldn't say it's a scientific theory because it's not, we're not expecting it to be subject um, to independent validation through evidence. All right. Um, and in that sense, well, that's why science and politics, for example, don't necessarily always mix very well because a, a politician can lie uh, and um, evidence can be um, fabricated. And that's acceptable, all right, the, because, because there isn't a standard of, of validation and so forth. So the scientific method in certain areas, for example, in politics or in, in judging whether something is beautiful or not, or whether a story has, is truthful, uh, the scientific method may not be the appropriate method. Uh, it's very, very powerful for certain class of, uh, for a certain class of behavior. So I think... You just have to be careful in, I'm a great advocate of science. I think it's one of the most wonderful things that humans have come up with. But at the same time, we mustn't sort of rare it, create some notion that it therefore is standing completely on its own in some pure form that is independent of, of the humans, uh, the human activity that contributes to it. No, uh, not at all. I mean, what I think is that the science is, first of all, a social phenomena because uh, we conduct it all together. And again, you know, because then it also goes to the philosophy of evidence and experiment and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, indeed, I mean, it is a it is a social phenomena. Uh, so I really encourage, I mean, people to, um, or the way, what the way I want to promote science, science is, I mean, of course, um, as scientists, uh, we are not different than the other people. It's just that we go from go uh, go through this rigorous training of doing science. That's it. It's like I'm doing a PhD where this is what I'm doing. I'm just getting trained to look at the evidence, to look at the 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 experiments and how to conduct them and look at the problems in a in a in a different way but but as a or if i wouldn't be a scientist or if i won't do what i'm doing right now i would just enjoy science i mean read about it just to to get to know more about how plants they develop from a seed to the whole 
think mm-hmm. or how babies they they uh, grow from a single cell to the whole human being in a way um how uh, our health is impacted with different uh, uh, reasons let's say how what are diseases all those things i mean um, i think these are like really um, important aspects so even if you are not a scientist you can still enjoy science probably as you enjoy i don't know music or art for example right absolutely absolutely 100% yeah, yeah. so uh, but then we i think skipped a lot uh, we started with evolution and the, the four major transitions that you explained but then we went i think at, at the very end like very end of the cycle so let's kind of uh, describe the cycle so from here as a scientist then again we we want to understand the ori- like our origins right mm-hmm. so and then again uh, that connects us to to the beginning which is again the evolution of um of uh, single cellular single cell life and then how it transforms into um mm-hmm. into different species which exist on the planet so the question is what are these uh, major elements between um evolution development um culture and the, the the fourth one uh learning yeah do you mean what are the commonalities between them Thank yeah you. so yeah so the, the, this is this idea that there are common principles behind these very different transformations that take you from something that's relatively simple to something that's much more complex so maybe i could illustrate it with a with a podcast with with your podcast okay sure. so you're 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 distributing these podcasts recording them and let's suppose um your podcast was successful let's suppose this let's suppose this podcast is very successful yeah. <laughs> and somebody listens to this and they say oh, that's really good and they tell two people about it and they say oh yeah they told two people pretty soon you know jatender's podcast um, is doing very very well it's spreading uh, with great success that's the process i call reinforcement that is that success can kind of breed success so that so that, so that this becomes a highly successful podcast but as soon as it becomes successful then people start saying we well, you know jatender's doing this extremely popular podcast and um maybe we could do a, a better one all right uh, so you end up with competition so so if you were if it, it, i'm sure it is very successful your podcast but if it was super successful the more successful it is the more others might copy it maybe improve it or make new tweaks and they would then have um, they would have their podcast so from this process of reinforcement this that i talked about you end up with generating competition or its own limitations it kind of limits itself it's, it becomes a victim of its own success and of course as uh, your competing podcasts start to come onto the scene then they will spur even greater standards and even greater competition and so you end up with this what i call the process of recurrence that is repeatedly this process of, of reinforcement and then competition builds on itself and so you end up with a more and more sophisticated um pattern so that's those are some of the elements that i've talked about that you have this kind of positive reinforcement going on but at the same time it causes its own um the success causes its own problems um now if you look at um and this happens recurrently these are the three of the three of the principles that i've talked about um, in my book um but you find if you look in evolution you'll find the same 
uh, same issues. You, you find the same logic underlies the theory of natural selection. In this case, you've got reproduction um, of organisms and the, them competing for an environment. You'd find the same things with development. You'd find cells um, as, you know, as, a, as, a, as an embryo grows, they compete for space and so forth, or gene activities which limit themselves. Uh, so you find the same logic in all these transformations. They're, they're dressed up in a different way, um, but in each case, you see the same logic. And you also find that um, this phenomenon that I'm talking about is dependent on populations. So in the case of um, population variation, in case your podcast, it's not a specific time one podcaster. There has to be a, a population of podcasters and people listening to the podcast that enables that to happen. And, um, but the populations are different in each case. So in the case of evolution, you're dealing with populations of organisms, populations of um, individuals in a species. Um, in the case of development, it's populations of cells or populations of molecules. In the case of learning, there's populations of neurons. And in the case of cultural change, you're dealing with populations, human populations. So that's another example of something that's common for all these different things. So I don't, there are seven principles that I think I come up with that I found were common to all these transformations in terms of their logic. Um, I I think four of them. But the idea is that if you look, you see this common structure uh, behind all these creative transformations. But let's take the example of culture and kind of try to define it because I think it'll be easier for people to understand how or what are, what are we talking about. So, podcast is an example of culture. Okay, yeah. so I, I explain an example of a reinforcement, competition, all right, um, population variation, and recurrence. That is that this happens recurrently, time time again. Yeah. Um, for other features like, for example, cooperation. Okay, so um, as your podcast, as people compete to produce better and better podcasts, then they start to form teams. All right, it helps actually to spend. Say, in fact, you, you might in fact start a little company, a, a group of people. All right, because then cooperation allows you to more effectively um, compete with other. So competition brings about cooperation. So often we think of cooperation as being the opposite of competition. They're two different things. But actually, a major driving force for cooperation is competition. Because by, as a group, you're a better competitor if you cooperate than as, as an individual. So actually, cooperation and competition are not mutually exclusive. Actually, cooperation is largely born out of competition. It's one of the positive features of competition is that you end up with um, massive cooperation as well. So um, that's another another one of the principles. Uh, another one is um, um, the notion of persistence, okay? That is that your podcast isn't ephemeral. It doesn't disappear. It gets recorded. It gets propagated. So again, in all of these systems, you would find things that propagate or persist, all right? And it's the persistence is very, very important. With it's, In cultural change, it's obviously, you know, printing, writing, recording, all of these things are very important for cultural change. In evolution, you have copies, genes being replicated. Um, in development, you have certain states that get propagated from one stage to the next. With neurons, you have synapses, all right, that 
retain and persist uh, so that certain memories or, or models, learning models can be maintained. Um, so you have populations of neurons that can compete with different synaptic uh, activities. So you find the same hallmarks in all these processes, but they're dressed up in different ways, uh, which is why they're hard to maybe hard to spot because they seem very different. But I would say when you look down, the structure is very common. I wonder if there is um, also an element of uh, parasitic behavior, for example. So I was talking to Eugene Kunin, who is uh, an expert in uh, evolutionary virology. So mm -hmm. he talks about viruses and their evolution. And he proposes that um, as soon as replicators, they, they evolve or emerge, um, we will also have the evolution of some parasitic elements, for example, which will just feed on. So it's like the, it's it's something which will happen eventually. So, and that's how he kind of explains the evolution of viruses. So what are those, or are there any parasitic elements in the, in the, in the whole transitions? Um, I think that's right. In the sense, what you just described is something being the victim of its own success. Now, whether, whether we call it parasitic um, or symbiotic or whatever, um, then what well, parasite has an has an emotional uh, what's the word connotation? Okay, we think of parasites as negative. Yeah. Um, viruses also have a negative connotation currently, particularly. So we have to be careful. What you just described, the logic of what you described, is success breeds its own limitations. It breeds its own problems and we see this repeatedly um, biologically all right success will will lead to uh, all sorts of difficulties and self-limitations and what you're calling parasitism i would say is a kind of a self-limitation that is the, the more successful you are as an organism the more parasites you're going to get all right because the, they'll see an opportunity all right that you're generating the opportunity um for them to 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 do you down now for example in case of your podcast okay let's suppose you're very very successful okay and then another group comes up and they start to make a podcast it's a bit like your podcast pretender but they kind of tweak it in some way and they're very successful and then you say well those are just parasites they parasitize my podcast for their own purposes and you now see them as negative all right, you could portray them as negative parasites. They're not negative in the sense that they're just doing their best to, to be as successful, and they've exploited your success to do that. And so in a sense, that's what a parasite is doing, but we just call it a parasite because we give it this negative. The parasite is it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's always the good, there's the good guy that is being parasitized <laughs> by the bad guy, and then we call that a parasite. You know, it's a question of viewpoint. We're all parasites. You're a parasite because you feed off plants and animals in a, you know, in a parasitic way. So, what does a so parasite is a very emotive term uh, for describing the fact that that uh, because of competition, uh, organisms will tend to exploit um, whatever they can for their survival and reproduction. Be and often that involves other organisms. Yeah, and where does the 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 survival of the fittest it it fits in the in the whole picture? 
Well, the survival of the fittest is, is uh, I'm not sure that Darwin ever used the term. I think it was, it's, um, but if you're talking about the theory of a natural selection, yeah. um, the theory of natural selection is a very specific theory that applies to populations within, uh, within a species, all right, interbreeding populations. For example, um, if you have um, different um, genetic variation, different lions in a, in a population of lions, and one is more efficient at capturing um, antelopes than the other one, then those variants will increase in the population. And we would say they have a higher fitness. Okay, that the, the lions carrying the genes that give them a better ability to hunt have a higher fitness than other lions. But we don't say, we can't say, is a, does a lion have higher fitness than um, a dandelion? Okay. We can't say that. It's meaningless. Okay. Why? Because the dandelion doesn't breed with lions. Okay. So the theory of natural selection is very specifically applied currently to populations of interbreeding individuals. It's not simply applied to different species. You can't say, is one species have a higher fitness than another species, all right, um, in terms of traditional, uh, what we call the, the modern theory of natural selection, it's very specific to individual populations and variation within populations. That's the notion of fitness. However, when we come to species comparisons, we do tend to think, take the human species, all right, which is reproducing at a, a, at a high rate and dominating the planet. Does that make us have a higher fitness than all the, all, the, all the species that we're exterminating? Not in the Darwinian sense, but it does have an ecological sense. That is, that our species may, is maybe, well, not maybe, is causing extinction of lots of other species. But that's of evolution operating at a, at a different level. It's at the level of species competition, but it's not the level of it's not what the theory of natural selection addresses. The theory of natural selection operates only within a species. But there is this higher level, what you might call ecological selection, which is to do with competition between species. Uh, but Darwin's theory is all about explaining adaptations through the process of populations, individuals within a species competing for limited resources, limited environmental resources. And and you are explaining the competition between species. Um, I'm not explaining that. I'm just saying that both of them are, for, are a form of competition. Okay. The competition can be looked at in lots of different ways. The theory of natural selection is a specific theory about competition within a species, within a population, within populations of, of interbreeding species. So the theory of evolution by natural selection is a theory about population competition between members of the same species, okay? That through that competition, populations evolve through the theory of natural selection. Then there's a higher level of what you might call ecological competition, all right, which is to do with different species competing, all right? And then you're dealing with extinction of species. So the difference is that with a population, within a population, you might have the lions some lions die and other lions survive within a within the lion population. But we don't talk about lions going, the lions, when a lion dies, we don't say it goes extinct. We just say that individual died because it wasn't as very, very effective. But if the lions as a species go extinct, all right, then we're talking about species competition. 
all right, that this species, and that's what humans are currently doing, they're going around, making lots of other species extinct, uh, which is a form of competition, but it's not the form that's captured by the theory of natural selection. So when you're talking about natural selection, you need to be clear what you're talking about, what type of competition. But in a sense, the point, the point is that competition is a very gen general phenomenon that you can see at a whole series of levels. You see it in evolution, you see it between cells in a developing organism, you see it with neurons, okay? So you have, for example, with neurons, you will often, during development, you'll have lots of neurons being born, but only some of them will survive. You produce more neurons than survive, many more neurons. Okay, you've got a lot of neurons in your brain, but the one you, that's a lot less than the number that were generated. A lot of them have died out through competition, neuronal competition. So competition is a very generic phenomenon that arises in all these processes through this, through this process of something that's reinforcing itself quite often, then having causing its own its own issues. Yeah, even at the replicators level. So, for example, I mean, um, Richard Dawkins, he describes this, the, the whole uh, competition between replicators and then how natural selection would work to give us something like uh, the early population of um, unicellular organisms, mm -hmm. uh, which would kind of kickstart the, the, the evolution by natural selection or Darwinian evolution, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so a lot of people. Sorry, that's a very good example of competition. Yeah, and and a lot of people they talk about this phenomena as well that uh, the 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 Darwinian evolution can start even at the replicators level, and then it just can go on further mm -hmm. through Luca and uh, through other unicellular organisms that we have even at present times or we had in the past and then how we are connected with all the living forms, right? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting, this issue of replicators, because a replicator doesn't replicate on its own. It actually relates to co cooperation, because a replicator, its DNA, for example, requires a cell, all right? So in a sense, it's interesting whether you concentrate on the replicator or the entire entity. All right, so Richard Dawkins quite often con concentrates on the replicator rather than the integrated unit. But I think he obviously he's aware of both. But competition can be considered either at the replicator level or it can be considered the more organismic level, um, depending on you know what which which aspect you want to emphasize. Um, but even in examples of where a replicator, there's cooperation going on. But even the components of the replicator. Have to cooperate for a replicator to, to replicate. So even though there's competition going on with a replicator, there's also massive cooperation going on as well within the replicating units because they had to cooperate in order to be able to do anything such as replicate. Yeah, or we can just think of it as an information, right? Because if it's information, it has to be linked with uh, something which which can decode it. I mean, if a replicator without a replicating unit is uh, nothing, it, uh, it yeah, won't make yeah, any yeah. sense, right? Exactly. Uh, so uh, we can think of it as in like information, which just gets uh, transcribed or like uh, somehow gets translated in a way, let's say. Um, and it has a meaning to it at the end, right? I think, again, it's very interesting how you 
It's a question also how you separate it. So if you say there's information and then there's something that decodes it, all right? Again, we're making a separation between the information and the decoder. But actually, if you look at life, the information we're often referring to as DNA. The thing that's decoding it is dependent on the DNA. All right. So there isn't actually a separation. All right. The, 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 it's likely that the, the two are connect, interconnected. You again, we try and make a separation. Oh, information decoding, but actually in life, the information produces the decoder that decodes the information. All right. So so it's not as a, so the, the structure of the decoder depends on what is being decoded. Um, so again, you end up with cycles. And I think um it's a very interesting feature of the human brain. We were talking about addition and subtraction and one being harder than it. Cycles we like, but we, they also bother us. Okay? Because when we have a cycle, um, I think it almost goes to the storytelling. Okay? We like beginnings. We like beginnings and we like ends. It's much easier. We think linearly. The cycle somehow seems a little bit disturbing because there's no place to begin, all right? <laughs> so we, we like a story to begin. Now, if you think about God, for example, okay, well, you ask, well, what's the, in the beginning there was God? So we want a beginning. But what came before God? You can't, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to ask that question. God came before God. So we park that question because we want a beginning and then we follow the story. So we end up with a nice linear story. We had a beginning and then it all carried on. And here we are now today. We do the same thing with information. You've just done the same thing with information and um, decoding. Right? We want to have a beginning. And the reason it's a very powerful way, because then you go from this condition to this condition, cause and effect. But quite often in biology, we have cycles, all right? But the effect now feeds back on, on, on the course, all right, at the later stage, okay? So you end up with cycles. And we find those very difficult to think about. Um, they are challenging because, you know, your starting point depends on your end point. And um, it's much harder to think about it sometimes. So we tend to break it down into these linear, these linear things, which is fine, but you just have to remember that's what you're doing. And, so, and then actually your description is probably... Um, not fully capturing what's going on because you're making this artificial break. Yeah, and then how would you answer um, to to the question that um, the evolution works on genes? I mean, so I had a conversation with Dennis Noble, who mm -hmm. talks about the the evolution works on the cells. Like what what you just explained that the whole thing is required for the. Uh, for the evolutionary process but on the other hand Richard Dawkins for example he would talk about it's the genes which carry the information the gene gene pool in the in the population right um, so what what do you think what's your comment on that so that's a very interesting I, I think both are correct <laughs> it depends <laughs> on what you want to what you want to in a sense you can look at evolution purely from the point of view of allele frequencies and genes it's absolutely fine um it's also absolutely fine to think in terms of uh but now I, if i want to understand why an allele let's take, take uh, a gene all right and we have a variant of a gene or what's called an allele 
And let's go back to our lions. The, 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 one, the one lion carries the allele, all right, that makes it hunt more effectively than the other, other lions. So what do you see? Over time, you follow a population and you follow the frequency of these alleles. And you see that the allele, one of these alleles increases in frequency in the population. All right, the allele that is making the lion hunt faster. So one description of evolution is to say, this allele has higher fitness because it's increasing the frequency. Now, you might be satisfied with that description. You say, fine. Or you might say, but hold on, why is that allele increasing frequency? Oh, well, now we need to think of what the allele is doing. Oh, it's increasing the ability of the lion to hunt. So now we say, oh, now we know the description, all right, which is, okay, but the, actually the allele, we can only understand what the allele is doing because we have to think about lions and catching and chasing and so forth. We now have another description. You could say that's a richer description than the first. On the other hand, let's suppose we forgot alleles and we just saw lions. We didn't know anything about the genes. We just saw lions becoming better and better at catching um, their antelopes. Well, we would see this behavior, but we might not understand what was going on. So we would have described everything at the level of lines, but not know anything about the gene. So each is a description, but each gives different flavors, and each maybe misses out certain points. Which one is the correct description? I don't think it makes sense to say which one is right. Is, it, is, is this correct or that correct? Actually, I think they're both correct. They're both different ways of describing things, but we have to remember that neither one is an absolutely full description of what's going on. That's where we make the mistake. If we then say, ah, oh, well, replicators, it's all there is, and the rest is just decoration. Now we're starting to make a judgment. We're now not just describing evolution. We're now making judgments about um, what is the key component versus the peripheral one. And then I think you, that's where you end up into trouble. Because in a sense, the DNA can't do anything on its own. You wouldn't understand anything if you just look at DNA. You need to look at the organism. But also looking at organisms without thinking about genes is a very poor way of describing things because you wouldn't be able to understand a whole bunch of things. So I, I think it's wrong. It's, 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 it doesn't make sense to talk about right and wrong. It's a question of richness of explanation and what it is you're trying to explain. I mean, I think that's the other thing. You might be trying to explain two very different things. And what fascinates one person might not fascinate the other person. So uh, it would come back to this issue of what you consider is important and what you care about and how you view the world. So one person may think, I, all I care about is allele frequencies and replication. That's the most important thing that matters to me. Fine, that's okay. Somebody else cares about something else and that's what matters to them. That's fine too. Um, but I, I'd say the mistake maybe is to make is to think that your description your way is the only way or the only valid way, then I think you, that's when you start to come unstuck um, because that's not accepting that might be other views that have their own richness, all right, their own problems with their own richness too. Yeah, I think the only uh, thing or the only thing which is different in both the views is uh, in one way you kind of um, isolate a lot uh, the, the, for example, alleles or genes uh, from the environment, but in the other case, like for example, if you consider the whole cell, mm -hmm. uh, you would uh, kind of consider also the environmental factors which may contribute, right? In the in the in the whole thing, I mean, I'm I'm talking, or at least the one example which um, Dennis Noble, uh, so he gave um, 
was the 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 epigenetic information so what he was saying that also the epigenetic information can be i mean it's debatable i know but still what he was saying that it can also um go from one generation to the other so maybe it's also contributing in into the whole process i think you have to be very careful to avoid caricatures so if you say epigenetic variation goes from one generation to the next then it becomes genetic variation so it depends what you mean by epigenetic, okay? Epigenetic has a very specific meaning, which is that it's to do, well, actually, epigenetic is, is used in lots of different ways. <laughs> but one of the common ways it's used now is, to, is a, a change in the DNA that is not based on a sequence change, but based on, say, changing the methylation or a molecular modification. Of, of the DNA that's not based on changing the AGCT, the, the sequence. But in a sense, when it's heritable, all right, but if it's heritable, then it's a genetic mutation as well because it's being passed on. So genetic and epigenetic can be confounded. You see what I'm saying? So epigenetic is meant as, as now meant as a very special type of genetic. All right. It's not that it's if it's passed on, in a sense, it's genetic. And so I don't think people like Richard Dawkins would have any problem with epigenetic mutations because they can be they can be passed on and they're just part of genetic. And similarly, I would say that he would argue that he thinks a lot about the environment and the environmental impact on these things. So I think it's a mistake to caricature each view, but there's a tendency to caricature. There's a tendency, this is my this is my own take on it. Um, we are, as, as I've tried to say, we're humans trying to do science. And as humans, one of our instincts is to kind of um, become slightly tribal in the sense that we tend to be, scientists are no different from anyone else, in the sense that they tend to portray their own views in a certain way and also um, see other tribes or other tribal views, all right, in, 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 in a different way. And often this competition between, between tribes of, of viewpoints, all right? And um, each, each will try and advocate their own viewpoint and often caricature the other viewpoint uh, to the point that, you know, to, to, uh, to, to emphasize their own viewpoint. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of science, actually. Science, um, scientists, as I said to you earlier, they're human. Um, they're objective in the sense that they believe that other people can test their ideas, but it doesn't mean they get attached they get attached to ideas and viewpoints and find certain ways of thinking more powerful than other ways. And as a result, they tend to, um, as I say, caricature and minimize other viewpoints um, as part of the, what they do. And I think that's fine. All I would argue is you should be aware of it a little bit. And as when you're evaluating these things, I would say that that both have valid viewpoints. All right, that, that, that there isn't necessarily an antagonism sometimes between these viewpoints. Put it this way: Is there an experiment that each viewpoint proposes that would refute the other viewpoint? Let's suppose we were talking about somebody who believes that the um, that the sun goes around the earth and, uh, and somebody else believes the earth goes around the sun or the sun okay the earth is a sphere another person believes the earth is flat all right 
Now, these are two viewpoints, but we can do observations and we can eliminate one viewpoint. We can say, ah, no, this observations are much more consistent with the Earth being a sphere rather than being flat. Then there are other viewpoints which are more about emphasis and that we can't really refute with an experiment. Okay, they're more of a, this is, a, this is one way of viewing things and this is, not, they're both scientific, they're both consistent with the data, but there's not a simple way that you would test one way of doing things rather than the other. They're more perspectives. And I would say that Dennis Noble and uh, Richard Dawkins, they have the flavor of different perspectives. Um, and it's, you could, are there experiments that will prove one way or the other? Well, Richard Dawkins often points to observations that you can't explain without invoking genes or without invoking uh, the, the, the factors um, in terms of fitness that relate to uh, the dynamics of gene. And that's true. But then Dennis Noble would say, well, that also fits with what I'm saying, because, but the genes are only a small part of what's going on. So you have this debate, and I don't think there's an experiment that will resolve it. It's, it's a debate that relates to perspective. Some, some perspectives you might find more appealing to you than other perspectives. Um, but it probably isn't the case that one is right and one is wrong. It's just that some will appeal, some will emphasize some things and others will emphasize other things. And both of them have value. And I think you just need to be able to appreciate the value of each, but at the same time appreciate that, you know, each one may also have its limitations. That's the way I, that's the way I would kind of, I'm sitting on the fence in a sense, but I think that's okay because I think it's the polarization. I'm not sure if it helps particularly. Yeah, I mean, definitely both of them, they have extremely important views. It's just the, I mean, I was trying to understand the, the, that what exactly, or what, for example, people like you who uh, who know about uh, the the concepts, uh, what do you think about this? I mean, in terms of uh, like, uh, I mean, of course we can go into more, more details, but definitely the experiments would explain a lot. Um, and, and yes, their contributions are there. So there is no doubt, right? Mm. Um, so the other concept that he, uh, Richard Dawkins, he described in the in the first book is the the meme concept. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm go taking you to to the cultural part again. So what do you think about the meme concept then? And I I know that he kind of kind of joking jokingly mentioned the the concept in the chapter because that's the feel that I got once I read it. Mm -hmm. That it's probably he was just trying something, um, but then um, I mean. I think it makes sense once you like read it, but then how far we can go with it? Well, I think it's been a very successful term, hasn't it? Because a meme yeah. <laughs> has actually become a meme. If you say, so, his notion of a meme is something uh, a, a unit of cultural piece that can get transmitted and becomes um, propagates. And, and and we use the word meme now the youtube videos and so yeah. so meme has actually spread the notion of meme it's actually become a it is a meme in a sense um i think in some ways it's it's valuable it's a valuable idea that but at the same time i'm not sure it makes um to what extent it represents the way humans think is another issue so 
What, are, what do I mean by that? So if you take the notion of a gene, the notion of a gene has a reasonably good scientific basis. It's a segment of the DNA with has certain properties and so forth. Um, and we understand in terms of how the gene influences the organism, that determines how rapidly the gene spreads. And we understand they have a very specific uh, structure. If we take the notion of a meme, in the jokey sense that uh, Richard Dawkins first postulated, I think it's absolutely fine to think in terms of units, a little end, like a, a YouTube clip or something like that, you can think of as meme. But if you take it as, does it tell us something fundamental about the way um, humans interact uh, and think. I'm not sure that these it's, it's these units are that useful, all right? So I think the no, just the, no, the notion that things can replicate, that we make things that like printing or, or anything else, um, things can spread and so forth, I fully agree with, um, it's, it's fundamental to the way culture changes. How useful it is to think in terms of cultural change, in terms of memes, I don't know. So although memes are very useful and described in terms of popular culture, um, to what extent they are useful, for example, in understanding the history of uh, humanity or cultural change, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Richard Dawkins ever put it forward in, <laughs> in that context. So I would say it has some value, but I would say in terms of... Um, our ability of humans to copy and replicate and spread things is, is much more complicated than little segments of stuff, is what I would say. So, for example, um, you know, you, you can you can propagate things through through all sorts of channels. You can have music, you can have podcasts, you can draw something, you can um, uh, there's all different ways in which you can propagate. Now, to, to say, to always say, well, what's the mean? What's the unit there that's being propagated? I'm not sure it's always very useful to do that. Um, but I think the notion of propagation uh, is extremely important. And the other thing is, it, it goes back to this issue about um, what we were talking about with Dennis Noble. Um, if you, if you see an, an allele that makes, or a variant that makes a lion that increases in frequency in the, in the population because it's helping the lion uh, catch its prey, if you just see that thing increases in frequency, then you would see that it's very successful. You have no idea why until you understand about lions. Okay. And the same applies to memes, really. They kind of can be descriptive. You, you see something very, very powerful. So one of the fascinating things is you see something that's incredibly successful on YouTube and you think, why was that one so successful? <laughs> Actually, the interesting part is figuring out why it's successful. And for that, the meme doesn't help you. What really helps you is understanding the context of why people are choosing to watch certain things or not other things, what motivates people. So actually, that's the interesting thing about humanity and human culture is not that these memes the question is how what is determining that certain things are incredibly successful and other things we 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 ignore so in a sense it kind of dodges the issue it's, a, it's kind of a descriptor i think it's perfectly it's a great it was a great idea and i and i think you know you should be given full credit for putting it out there 
and it's now been incredibly successful. So it has some value, but you have to, but it also has limitations in terms of its explanatory power. But I don't think Richard Dawkins ever put it forward as a big new theory of social change. I think you said, as you said, he threw it out as a, as a speculation. Yeah, I mean, one idea would be, for example, religion. I I don't understand what, why <laughs> religion has been so successful, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's an idea, but uh, yeah, people are just like, I mean, we can have I don't know hours uh, long conversation about pros and cons of it, but still, uh, we can put a lot of evidence uh, in front of it's again, you know, we can share the stories, but it seems like that story is 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 quite strong for some reason, right? Well, I think that's because um, <clears throat> it's what we come back to before. Religion is not based, it's not a, It's not purely a, an issue of evidence and evaluating a theory in terms of evidence. Religion fulfills a whole set of functions and has a, whole, has a whole set of social rules, one of which is it brings communities together. It's in a fan, fantastic form of cooperation. It's also a form of division, all right? It's a form of tribalism, okay? It defines you in relation to others. Um, it's also a form that we, we can find solace and reassurement. We find it reassuring to think that there's, that there's a being out there that looks after us and that's got our interests at stake. So there's a whole set of things that are behind the notion of religion. It's also very historical. Okay? Our parents may have been religious and their parents, and it may go right back into the, their origins and the struggles that they had. Um, so... It's a massively complicated thing, religion, and to think uh, oh, it's just an evidence-based theory that we, we therefore, oh, you just present the evidence and therefore people should not be religious or believe in God because here's the evidence. I think it's incredibly naive because that is applying science to something which is not really being evaluated scientifically. There's a whole set of things that are going into that that are outside of the domain of science. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Richard Dawkins, who's been quite vociferous in terms of um, his views on religion, I think, um, you know, I think from an evidential point of view, I think the case is very clear cut. I'm not religious, and I see from the point of view of scientific evidence, but I think that that's not the reason that people believe fundamentally in 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 a religion is much more complex than the issue of evidence and unfortunately religion although it can do great positive things in humanity because it is has been a great source of inspiration and cooperation it also sadly has also been a source of division and um and strife so again you know what what aspect are you going to look at in terms of religion it's positive elements or it's negative element. Both, I think, are there. Both cannot be doubted. Um, but you might believe that one is, depending on your viewpoint, um, you might see one is more harmful than the other. If I was to look at religion now, I see more harm than good coming out of religion. But that's my own personal viewpoint. Um, and others, I'm sure, would differ. But I see that the divisions it causes um, and that causes me pain to see that. So in that sense, um, 
You know, but that's not just about scientific evidence, as I said. That's about me judging the, the benefits and, and, and lack of benefits of that viewpoint to society. Exactly. That's, but that's the thing, right? Like, if you think of progress of humanity, in, in that sense, it matters a lot, uh, uh, like how people look at religion. Hmm. No. I think, I think, in terms of humanity, I think um, Harari, Noam Harari, has, has, yes. has advocated, and I think this is correct, that people, the, the great cultural achievements who have achieved civilizations and so forth, required people to subscribe to a collective idea. Okay, they need to, so whether the collective idea is that you have a king, uh, um, uh, that is has some special powers or whatever, then um, having a collective idea, people having a faith in common faith, common in an idea, whether it's religious or it could also be, need not be a, a god, it could be a king, it could be a, a leader, um, but that notion bonds people together, gives them something unquestioning to, to, to uh, fight for, and also divides them from the competitors, all right, and allow and justifies things like war uh, and so forth. So it, it's a justification for cooperation, but also for aggression. And uh, that has been an incredibly powerful feature of human cultural change. And without it, it's, it's, it's unclear whether cultural change would have happened as quickly, because um, you need, how do you bring people together to do things collectively? Um, if everyone's doubting everything, okay, then then it's a harder thing to do. I mean, science is remarkable in the sense that every scientist should be doubting everything that they're told. At the same time, scientists do accept a body of knowledge. Okay, so in one sense, we are scientists doubt things because we're challenging ideas, but in another sense, we do tend to, we don't doubt by and large. A set of if we doubted everything, you know, science would not be possible. So we kind of take it on. Um, I don't. I haven't gone and observed every every physical, every law of physics and chemistry and so forth. I take it on trust from my colleagues in physics and chemistry and so forth that they have evaluated these things. And in some cases, I evaluate them for myself. And I, uh, um, but in most cases, I don't. So it still also also involves a community of belief but a community that believes, but also is doubting, okay? And, um, but in, in, um, in the history of cultures, the doubting component was was stamped out. So that, that's a much more, what I'm trying to say, it's a much more sophisticated community than one that's just based on blind belief without any doubts, where doubt is discouraged. And those ideas were, guiding things like the, the ancient civilizations and so forth and cultural change, that's been a characteristic feature that you have a leader that people do not doubt, okay, and, and that their word is sacrosanct. That idea is an incredibly powerful way of galvanizing people, and we see it today, and sadly, we see it in politics, we see still people want to have somebody they believe in is telling them the truth, even though we know Sometimes that they're telling complete lies, but they have this faith in in an individual. That idea has been incredibly powerful uh, in history as a way of galvanizing and uniting people. 
uh, and as a way of driving populations on human population. Um, but it's and as I say, it's a science. It's, there's an element of it in science, but it's 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 science has this amazing quality that at the same time it accepts doubt in a big way, in a major, in a fundamental way, and that's what kind of sets it apart from these these other things. But I'm not sure whether science, if has that because it's 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 a harder story to to convey because people don't want doubt. Okay, so, 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 so we like doubt, but at the same time, we don't like doubt. We like certainty. And um, so that's maybe why science, if, if you, uh, um, a leader that says, okay, believe me, but actually don't believe everything I say, <laughs> uh, may not going to be as powerful as galvanizing uh, his population. So I think it kind of relates to religion. It's that same idea of unquestioning that uh, belief, uh, you know, which as a scientist, um, it's not that I don't have unquestioning beliefs, but actually I do have, for example, I believe, you know, that people should be kind to each other and not should not kill each other. And so I have those, those are unquestioning beliefs. Um, but um, I don't have an unquestioning belief about the way the world works. Okay, so I believe in the scientific domain. All right, I believe that uh, everything is up for grabs. Even the fundamentals of physics. If somebody comes along and challenges it and comes up with a new idea, you know, then we should be prepared to doubt what we have been told. So, um, in that sense, I don't have in the domain of science. There is no unquestioning belief. There should be no unquestioning belief. But the domain out of science then I think I have unquestioning beliefs like anyone else. They're not religious beliefs, but they're unquestioning beliefs, I would say. I mean, first of all, if we'll have to confirm everything, all the evidence will be like octopuses doing uh, science, <laughs> right? Because they are no, I mean, if in future octopuses, they, they'll manage to do science, mm -hmm. uh, it'll be like that. It's it, just because they are not social animals, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. It's it, it, I think also comes from this evolutionary psychology point of view that we, the we, we kind of, uh, of course, band together, but also somehow we trust this, the, the information which comes from the ancestors. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the scientific sense, we can go back and read the papers, the, you know, we can look at the scientific evidence in that sense. I mean, of course, you can spend 10 years to really understand what physicists and chemists have been doing and kind of uh, check, uh, double check what they are doing, etc. I mean, and I think it happens a lot in, in this sort of interdisciplinary uh mm. the things i mean for example what you are doing right i mean you of course you work with snapdragons the, the plants but then you go back and read other things and you kind of find out what's happening in the other fields mm -hmm. so uh you may have doubt but then even if you have those doubts you can find what is the evidence for that if not you can pose the questions whether you do it or i mean you work on those questions or some other people can work on the, those questions right so in in that sense, I think again there is this element uh, where we we can have the this the evolutionary uh, aspect to it, like uh, we can keep that element to, to 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 the scientific method. But in general, I mean, still those aspects are evaluated 
by the by hum- humans by like in 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 a social context right i think that's right i think science depends on trust and doubt the both are there okay you have to trust um but then your trust you the, those you trust have earned your trust all right through evidence all right so you're not just trusting blindly you're trusting on the basis of evidence and also that trust is provisional in the sense that if evidence comes along to the, to contradict something then you you're prepared to you should be prepared to doubt doubt something so um doubt and trust go together in science you can't have science without trust because it would be uh, impossible but you can't have science without doubt because um it, that would also be possible uh, that would also be impossible. So um, it's just this weaving together and your criteria of trust and doubt, um, which is, I'd say, a very specific form in science. It's the criteria of what you trust and what you doubt. Um, and particularly what you trust, you, you have to be very careful as a practicing science as to what you trust. Um, because people can be wrong, they can have misconceived ideas. And if you trust, what they've said, then it turns out that you're actually going in the, in the wrong path. So you have to be, so trust is is there, but it has to always be evaluated. Yeah, I think, it, and also it's probably a very important message for the for the uh, group leaders, for the, you know, scientists, the, the established scientists that, you know, once you are at that level, you have you have to have, uh, you know, this. You have this kind of responsibility where you need to maintain a level where uh, to to make sure what what kind of uh, questions you have uh, because again, it's like the, the careers depend on that, right? Oh, I think I think um, self doubt is incredibly important and uh, for a good scientist. And unfortunately, the, the human uh, predicament. If, we, if we're successful and we get older, we tend to start to think, oh, look, I was successful. And then you, you, you think, oh, well, then that means, you know, maybe you start to doubt yourself less. Okay. And, um, and then other people feel more intimidated because you've become an authority. And then they don't tell you that's a stupid idea. <laughs> they feel, you know, um, respect for you. And so that's, I'd say that's the danger of an established scientist. That they start to that their self doubt starts to to decrease. And incidentally, this is not just true of scientists; it's true of anybody. You see, people make mistakes in all sorts of careers because they no longer doubt themselves. They become arrogant and, and so forth. They don't know. Nobody tells them that they're doing the wrong thing anymore, and they become deluded. All right, to the point that you know usually some disaster happens, which is usually what happens in some of these um, movies and these dramas and so forth. Sometimes they find they just retire and that's the end of it. But um, I think it's something I think about a lot, um, making sure that you continually challenge yourself and continue to doubt because it's it's very easy to fall into the habit of not questioning yourself. It's, it's, it's a natural thing, I'd say, for humans to tell themselves stories that make themselves feel good about themselves. And uh, so you have to always, in a sense, make yourself, yourself slightly uncomfortable by doubting things to be um, to maintain good science. Now, that's the challenge for 
um, an established scientist. And a, a scientist at your stage, you're doing your PhD, um, you're probably full of doubts, and that's a healthy thing, actually. I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, but then you also need a certain element of confidence in order to keep going and to follow your hunches. So sometimes it's having the confidence that's the issue. A young scientist can have different, different difficulties. So some can be overconfident and not be not sufficiently self-doubting. Others can be too self-doubting the point that it paralyzes them from doing things because they, they're doubting their ability all the time. I don't think, that, again, this is not special to science. You could say that in any, any um, area, whether you're um, uh, whatever discipline or trade or, or activity uh, you're doing, you have those same issues. This balance between self-doubt and confidence and both of them on their own being dangerous, but the mix, getting the mix correct, allows you to, to maintain progress. And those that continue making progress are often those that can keep that mix going rather than being swamped one way or one way or the other. So I had a conversation with Dean Burnett, uh, who is a psychologist. And he talked about an interesting aspect that uh, a lot of people that they end up in these higher uh, positions, they don't have this element of self-doubt. Mm. And he's like, probably that's why uh, the, the state of the politics is what it is, you know, <laughs> because if there is no this kind of loop, uh, you won't really understand the, the kind of decisions that you're making or what you're saying, whether it's correct or not. So yeah, that was it's it's interesting yeah. what you're saying. Well, I mean, self doubt is is actually can be counterproductive in politics, and I've seen this in debates. For example, let's suppose you have a debate, uh, say genetic modification of organisms, and you have two people standing up, and one of them is saying genetic organisms are terrible, genetic modified organisms are terrible. They're going to destroy the environment. They're artificial. They're abnormal, and so forth. And says it with complete confidence and no doubt. And then you have the other ones, and, well, I'm not so sure, you know, I think there could be positives, there could be negatives, and so forth. Oh, so you're not sure, the audience thinks. Oh, well, that's a bit worrying, because, you know, this could be a disaster, couldn't it? But how can you not be sure? Oh, well, you know, um, yeah, I, I can't tell, you know, there are, you know, it could be, I can't be 100%, but I do think the benefits are greater than the losses and so forth. Whereas the other one is going, yes, no, it's absolutely like this. Who is the audience going to believe? Are they going to believe the confident one, all right, that says, no, there's no doubt about it, it's going to be, and the other one who's equivocating and saying, here's the evidence, here is the evidence. It goes back to what we were saying before. Your leader, people want to have um, answers. They want to believe in something. They want to have yes and no. And if somebody gives you a, a, a gray, something that's kind of not one thing or the other, it's more disturbing. So you go for the one that is telling you this is the way it is. And politicians, when they're being questioned, will often not expose doubt. It was, oh, well, yes, maybe. I don't know. I think about it. That is really good. I haven't thought about that. They come back with a very rehearsed um, answer that does not reveal doubt. And so it's selected against in politics. Of course, you might say that a good politician, even though they portray a lack of doubt, might nevertheless have some self-doubt, um, which allows them to become a better politician, if you know what I'm saying, within the field of politician. They just don't show the doubt. 
to, to their audience because doubt is often considered to be a negative trait in politics. Um, but, um, but as I said, I don't think these are specific issues. They're degrees, they're, they operate in degrees in whatever line you're in. It's just that maybe in some cases, uh, doubt has less of a, uh, is less acceptable, at least on the public, on the public front. Um, but I would say politicians have, if you ask them, have are full of self-doubt. I mean, some politicians will be full of self-doubt, others, others less so, even though they all try and portray a lack of self-doubt publicly. I mean, an another example would be uh, COVID, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, first time where um, I think the, the whole world, the, the humanity saw signs uh, working in like real time, right? I mean, all the issues that we had with masks, with with the vaccines, it's that actually showed that it's the it's the understanding of the scientific method uh, which is lacking in the uh, in the society. It's not it was not like this or that confusion. I think it was just this thing because if we understand that there is it's it's always like that. It's not like someone is lying or this or that. It, it's it's this is how science works. There is always this trial and error. And then we reach to a conclusion where we say that, okay, these things, they, they would work or this is how it is, right? No, I think that's it. That's it. COVID is a fascinating, I think you're right. There's a fascinating, I remember COVID, um, the rise of COVID, and you could see it was an exponential rise. And what that yeah. means is that it was doubling, I think, every two days yeah. at the time. I remember this in early 2020. And, um, and, you could see the politicians. So politicians often have a way. If, if they spin it correctly, it'll go away. All right. If you make if you spin it correctly, it'll. So um, and they didn't really understand some of them what exponential really means. But as a scientist, you know what exponential means. You know that if it's doubling every two days, pretty soon, within a few weeks, it's going to be massive. All right. And if you don't intervene early enough. All right. You're going to have a much bigger problem to deal with when it, when it becomes very prevalent. But I think a lot of politicians just kind of say, well, you say it's increasing, but well, let's wait for it to increase. Okay, then we'll do something about it. So there was a lack of scientific understanding of a reality. That is, realizing that this isn't a question of opinion. This is a question, this is what is happening. It's doubling every two days. That's not a matter of opinion. And and sort of spinning it, it's not going to change the fact that if it's doubling every two days in in in, in a week, it's going to be uh, you know eight times or whatever. So um, there was a lack of understanding um, among politicians. There was also a fear of taking action. All right, it's not purely a scientific debate. All right, so the idea of locking people down and and um, you know, depriving people having to stay at home, all right, to avoid getting ill, was a massive political thing to do as well. So I think it wasn't just about the science, it was also about balancing what the science was telling you with the actions that needed to be taken, what would, what would be acceptable politically. And that was, um, I think, you know, people were not clear about, but for sure the science was, I think the science was very clear but of course, then when people didn't make the right decision, they blame the scientists as well. So they did. we saw that as well. So that they would actually make the wrong decision. They didn't act early enough. Okay. And then they blame the scientists for not telling them or whatever. 
Uh, but actually, you know, that, that was also a political game. Um, but you're right, we saw it, the whole debate between science and society right in front of our face. And very real, in a very real way, because yeah. we sort of make yeah. personal decisions as to what, what we would do in terms of our exposure to, to, um, to risk. Yeah, and basically that time also helped me to kind of, um, you know, align my thoughts and to understand what is the scientific method. And then basically I could kind of make this decision that, okay, we probably we need to communicate about it more so that people would understand. Yeah. So, um, so let's conclude it. Um, and I wanted to conclude it with the, with your another book, which is The Art of Genes. Um, so, which is the combination of both. So as an artist, uh, which I should have mentioned, so you would paint, draw, maybe you can uh, talk, talk about it a bit. Yeah, no, I, um, I do portraits and um, paintings. I've always been interested in, in, in art and painting. Um, I think it's a, yeah, it's just a very enjoyable activity. And I think it's one of those activities. Um, I remember uh, when I was supervising PhD students, I was, I was a researcher in my 30, early 30s and I was running a lab. And when you start to, in your PhD and you're doing your research, you start off in the lab doing lots of experiments. And then as you become a supervisor, then you have PhD students in your lab doing some of the experiments. And you can't, it's just very difficult to keep doing experiments yourself and supervise students, just as not, you know, to do proper supervision takes time as well. And so I was doing fewer experiments and, um, and I realized that um, when you're supervising somebody, if an experiment goes wrong, okay, if you're doing an experiment and something goes wrong, there's only one person you blame and that's yourself, okay? When I say an experiment goes wrong, it's, it, 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 it means a number of things. One is you forget to do something or whatever, or it doesn't give you an answer that you're anticipating and so forth. But there's a, it's, you're having a conversation with nature in a sense. You're asking nature, here's my idea. Is it like this and things? And it's frustrating and things don't work and, and so forth. And it's painful. It's, it's a very painful process. I think people maybe don't appreciate that, but well, everybody appreciates the pain of failure. And, and a lot of science, doing a PhD, there's a lot of failure, uh, a lot of frustration, a lot of difficulty, you get depressed and so forth. Now, when you become a supervisor, of course, your role then is you see PhD students and they're going through all of the same process that you went through. And you try and reassure them, help them and so forth, to deal with their pain. But it turns out that dealing with other people's pain is not as painful as dealing with your own pain, at least in my experience. <laughs> <laughs> so the pain of somebody else's failure and difficulty was never intense as the pain I felt when I was failing. And so I kind of, I think, uh, I, in some way, you become slightly once removed from nature in the sense that you are no longer directly interrogating nature. You're interrogating nature through a kind of somebody else who's working with you, but there isn't that direct contact, that, that direct sense of failure. And I started painting. Um, I think part of it, it gave me that feeling of direct 
contact because if you do a lousy painting, there's only one person to blame. There's nobody else. There's you, you have screwed up or you've done a, you know, what I'm trying to say is there's no intermediary. You are faced directly, you've got a blank canvas and you've got to somehow struggle with your paints and your skills and so forth to try and create something that you feel is vaguely satisfying. And that's that's a very intense struggle, but one in which you are directly dealing with your kind of, not adversary, because you're not fighting somebody, but you, there is a, a dialogue going on directly between you and your painting. And I think it kind of fulfills something in me that may, this is the story I tell myself, I don't know if it's true, but this will make sense to me, that in a sense, I kind of was filling in a little bit of that direct confrontation um, that became less as I was becoming a scientific supervisor. So I did start to take up painting in my 30s, and um, then I started doing portraits, and um, and it also inspired my science. So I think it, it, it worked both ways, the science and the and the painting kind of fed, it, fed into each other. Um, and the art of genes was really born from an element of that cross-fertilization cross of ideas between the two, between my science, which is about genetics and development, and my painting, which is also a very developmental thing because you start with something that kind of gradually turns into whatever, painting a face or, a, or some other, some other thing that you're stri striving for. Excellent. I, I have looked at uh, some of your uh, portraits and they are amazing. I, I can put the link. People can also uh, look at them. It's, it's really nice. They're at least the, the, the people who are visiting your institute. So the, it's the scientists that they are visiting your institute for talks. So I, I have looked at at least those uh, portraits. They're yeah, now those are kind of fun because you get, uh, we have these uh, lecturers that come. Uh, they're called named lecturers because they're named after something like the Darlington lecture and the Holloway lecture. And they give talks. Um, and then after their talk, I have a session with them for two hours in which I try and do their portrait. And it's a very, a portrait is a collaborative thing where you're talking to them and they're talking to you. Often they're observing your pain as you're trying to go through this process of capturing, of capturing them. Um, but again, it's a lovely way of, of of meeting people, talking to people. Um, often, you know, you're there for a couple of hours and their mind wanders and you, you hear all sorts of things uh, in terms of what they're, what they're thinking about. A bit like being, at a, in a way, being like a hairdresser where <laughs> you just kind of, I think it's a bit, yeah, probably less, <laughs> yeah, people don't probably, quite, not quite as random as a, as a hairdresser maybe. But what I'm trying to say is people relax, relatively relaxed and start to just talk because they're sitting they're sat in a single position for a, for a period of time most people are busy doing stuff and so to be sat for a while and just um kind of just saying what comes into their head um so that's quite that's quite a nice way of interacting with them and then you end up with a picture at the end of it sometimes they're happy with it sometimes they're not happy with it <laughs> um so there's, there's that as well. But yeah, it's an interesting challenge. And uh, I sadly, since COVID, because of COVID, that that, that stopped. So um, so I'm now out of practice for, for, for doing those. 
But yeah, before COVID, you'll see that the portraits carry on and then COVID <laughs> uh, <laughs> brought it to an end. So maybe you can start again now? Yeah, maybe. I, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. But yeah, yeah. But yes, so who knows? I might start up again. Yeah. I certainly will um, with paintings and portraits uh, in general, but whether I do it in that form, I don't know. Um, because my wife is also, because she's disabled, I have to be very careful. But mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, in principle, it's um, it's something I very much enjoy. Um, so maybe I'll get back to it. Interesting. And the so you have two books now, Cells to Civilizations and The Art of Genes. Mm -hmm. Is there a possibility of third one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you two things. One is, one is uh, I wrote, I tried to write a novel. Oh, interesting. Which is a very different thing from mm -hmm. a, a popular science book. And mm -hmm. uh, actually, my first attempts were pretty terrible. Um, so I spent, I think, 10 years trying to write a novel. It was about a novel about stories, about storytelling and um, the principles of storytelling. Um, but actually getting an agent for... For a novel turns out to be a very difficult thing to do. So um, I don't know whether it'll ever get published. But anyway, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process of learning. Writing a novel, the style of writing a novel is a very different thing. Uh, different skills, different way of pacing, different language. Um, but I very much enjoyed the process. And whether it gets published or not, I, we will see. Um, and then I, but I think maybe I will write some more popular science books later on um, that really related to, to some of the science that I'm doing. Um, currently, I'm really enjoying my science. Um, and uh, But yes, later, maybe I will write one or two more popular science books as well. So I very much enjoy writing. Uh, it's a wonderful way of being able to clarify and express your your thoughts. I think it's important to have something to say as well, and not just write for the sake of it. Um, but I think as long as I feel I have something to say, and um, then the, it's a certainly it's a fantastic uh, uh, privilege, really, to to be able to try and express your ideas and hopefully communicate them to other people. So so that's yes, one of the great pleasures in life. I think writing. Also, I enjoyed it very much. I mean, I, I also told you, I think the last time, the especially this paper, Homo Geneticus, this nice. was, it's it's phenomenal. Like the, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was already like that novelistic kind of, you know, <laughs> element. It was there like, because you understand a halfway of the, the, the paper, what, okay, it's it's about something else. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. So um, thank you so much for accepting the invitation, uh, spending time uh, and for the conversation, great ideas. It was amazing. Thank you. That's my pleasure to attend. Thank you so thank you so much.